Greetings, fellow travelers, vagrants, explorers, wildlanders, and welcome to episode 33 of the Retro Wildlands. My name is Nomad, and this is my gaming podcast where I like to share my thoughts and experiences with a video game that I have discovered or rediscovered while roaming the gaming wildlands. Thank you very much for tuning in to the show today. I'm happy to have you with us on our Wildlands expedition. Dee Dee, our canine expedition leader, is especially happy to see you because, for the last hour or so, he's been the only one to bring more wood towards the campfire, and he's having a rough go of it, as it were. Haha, <laughs> there's a free dog pun for ya. Dexter, our resident old man chihuahua, claims that he is, quote, too old for this shit, end quote, and hasn't really moved much today. Wait, what was that? Why am I not helping with the firewood? Well, I had to prepare the script for the show, and I have to say the words that need to be said, and I'm not much of a multitasker, but you're here now, so grab some wood from the pile over there and feel free to give us a hand. There's some good drink and potentially a good campfire story for you to regale in today. That is, if a roller coaster of emotions is your thing. On today's episode, we're checking out a video game that I grew up with and played for hours and hours when I was little. It was a game I never really got that far in, but I still had a blast playing. Even if this game did me no favors when it came to helping me get over my fear of being underwater. It's a game that I think is fairly divisive among certain gaming social circles, and it's a game that I happen to see a certain level of genius behind. I am, of course, talking about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on the original Nintendo Entertainment System. When I was little, the one thing that got me out of bed was watching the Ninja Turtles cartoon. If I couldn't watch them on TV when they aired, I had gathered up a few of the VHS tapes that you were able to get from Burger King and watched those over and over again. Does anybody remember those VHS tapes? They had the old cartoon episodes, um, what were they? The Invasion of the Pizza Snatchers, Sky Turtles, and there was a couple others. I had a Leonardo and Donatello action figure, and, to this day, I have the pizza thrower vehicle that you can make your turtle action figure sit right on top of, and it shoots these little plastic pizza discs right out of the front. I was all in on the turtles, so it was a no-brainer that we would have the Ninja Turtles game on the Nintendo. When I wasn't playing Super Mario or blasting ducks out of the sky in Duck Hunt, I was trying to stop the evil Shredder. Back then, and even today, what I always loved about this game was the ability to play as all four turtles. Not only that, you can switch between the turtles at any point in the game. Each turtle got to use their signature weapons and even find some other ninja-type weapons as you go. You fight Bebop and Rocksteady, and if you can get far enough into the game, you can even drive around in the turtle van, the party wagon. And best of all, there was a water level too. <laughs> Oddly enough, my favorite levels in Super Mario Bros. were actually the water levels. They were just fun, different, and usually had the best music to listen to. And while I wasn't much of a swimmer when I was a kid and refused to go underwater until I was about 12 or 13, these levels were just fun to me. The only asterisk there is the fact that I did develop a fear of drowning as I grew up, and I think the Ninja Turtle game is partially to blame, 
but we'll get into all that in due time. All of that to say, I love this game growing up, so going back to this game as an adult had me pretty excited to revisit a childhood classic. When I announced my intentions to a few gamer pals of mine, I felt like they did not quite share in my excitement. No, don't do it, one told me. Why would you do that to yourself? Another one said to me. This game is broken. <laughs> broken? Get out of here with that nonsense. This game is a classic. Sure, it's not the easiest game out there, but I had nothing but fond memories with this game. And now that I'm an adult with many more gaming experiences under my belt, I'm sure it's just a matter of time until I see myself at the end of this game. What could possibly go wrong? Well, I beat the game this past week, and boy, was it a journey. Was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles the game that I remember it being? Is it as hard as they say? Will I ever play this game again? Well, strap in, my friends. I'm going to regale you with my adult thoughts and experiences with this game in just a little bit, so settle in, grab a drink, and get comfortable. Now, before we get into the show proper, I like to use this time to give you all a peek behind the scenes here in the Retro Wildlands. Depending on what's on my mind, I like to talk about things such as how the podcast itself is doing, what projects I may be working on, what's going on in my life, what games I'm playing, or whatever else. Think of it as the warm-up round before the main event. Plus, if I get any comments about the game that we're going to be talking about from the community when I call out for them on social media, I'll read them here before we get into the actual game. And this week, we got a pretty decent pile of comments, so feel free to stick around for those. However, if listening to me ramble about what's going on around here doesn't sound interesting to you, no worries, you can just skip ahead about 10 to 12 minutes, and you should hit the Ninja Turtles talk. I've also loaded timestamps into the show description, so pop that sucker open if you want to know exactly where you need to go. So, perhaps the biggest thing to talk about this week is something I'm not too excited to talk about, but since I began the podcast back in July of last year, I have always valued transparency. If you're taking time out of your lives to listen to my show, I feel like I owe it to you to let you know what's been going on around here and what you might be getting into down the road. So when I first started the Retro Wildlands, I envisioned it being a weekly podcast. I wanted to release a new episode every Thursday talking about a different video game. Originally, it was just going to be video games I played growing up but it quickly turned into me playing video games I never had a chance to play when I was younger and talking about them as an adult. The idea really captured the whole notion of roaming the gaming wildlands and discovering or rediscovering some awesome games. And as I started making more episodes, I started to refine what I wanted those episodes to look and sound like. To really capture the essence of these games and make each show accessible to those that have played these games before and those that haven't, I saw incredible value in editing in sound effects and music from those games in order to transport you into these gaming worlds. The quality of each episode got better, at least in my opinion, and the feedback I received from some of you listening was resoundingly positive. It reaffirmed for me that I was on the right track. However, over the last few weeks, I've had a harder and harder time completing an episode of the show on time. 
I've posted an episode a day or two late these past few weeks, and it's really starting to wear on me personally. I pride myself on meeting my commitments, but I had to be honest with myself. I just have too much going on right now to commit to the weekly posting schedule that I want to. Really, I need a backlog of podcast episodes in the bank that I can fall back on, and while I had that at one point, the bank now is currently empty. Now, I could cut out some things, I could dial back what I want to talk about, or not go so hard on the post-production editing and all that, but I really believe in the quality of the show that I'm making. It's certainly not top tier or anything, it's just a format that I'm personally proud of, so I can't really bring myself to cut anything out. I just need a backlog of episodes and more time to allocate to these projects. But really, at the end of the day, while I want the Retro Wildlands to grow, it is just a hobby for me right now. My adult job is requiring more of me these past few months, my wife and kids deserve more time than I'm giving them right now, and I need to dial back some of the pressure that I'm putting on myself. At the end of the day, really, I am just a one-man band. You can read more about all of this on our social media pages, but the long and the short of it is, I'm going to scale back how often I release podcast episodes. I'm going to shoot for an every two weeks release schedule and turn this show into a bi-weekly podcast for the time being. With over 30 episodes in our archives, I think we have a pretty okay backlog of pods for people to listen to. I'm hoping the extra time in between episodes will help me de-stress a little while I focus on the quality aspects of things around here. Ultimately, I want to build the Retro Wildlands into something, so I have no plans to stop. I just need to dial it back a little bit for a while. So that said, I'll still be active on our social media pages, and I'll still be uploading our back catalogs of podcasts over on YouTube. Once things settle down and I'm able to build up a small pile of episodes that I can put in the bank and lean on those for times like this, I intend to go back to the weekly format. As of right now, I have zero plans to monetize the podcast or anything like that right now. I just want to focus on me and building the Retro Wildlands in a way that makes sense to me. Really, I just want to make sure that building episodes is something that continues to bring me joy, so I can bring that joy to you in a meaningful way. So that said, I really hope all of that makes sense. I know the best podcasts out there have that consistency thing going for them when it comes to episode releases, and I really want to get there. And honestly, I know I will someday. But for now, I just ask for some patience with me. You'll still get new episodes just a little slower than I'd like to give them to you. So if you aren't following us on your preferred podcasting platform now, there has never been a better reason to consider doing that. This way, you'll be instantly notified when I do post a new episode. You should also consider following the Retro Wildlands on social media. You can find us over on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. All you have to do is search at Retro Wildlands and you should land on us. I'll still be very much active over there, and it's the best place to get a leg up on what I'm working on and what will be coming out and when. Alright, so if you made it this far and everything I just said didn't completely piss you off and drive you away, I just want to say thank you. Really, I started this pod with zero expectations, but there's people out there that actually listen to my dumb show. And 
I could not be more grateful. So if you decide to stick around and really like what it is that I'm trying to do here, please consider leaving me a good review on your podcasting platform of choice if you can. A little while ago, Jenny E. left us a wonderful review over on Podbean. That's the site that I use to host the podcast. She posted this off of our Top 10 Boss Themes episode and said, First time listener, and this was a great episode to jump into. You have a great speaking voice with a good rhythm that feels natural and not rehearsed. I'm not a big audio nerd, but the music clips felt seamless and weren't drastically different volumes, as can happen with some podcasts. Great listen, and I found myself agreeing with the ones that I knew. We'll definitely check out more. Now, first and foremost, I wanted to thank you, Jenny, for the glowing review. It absolutely made my day. I'm just learning all of this as I go, especially when it comes to the audio, so I'm glad it sounded good for you and you had a great time with the episode. Now, I didn't read Jenny's comment just to pat my own back, even though it does make me feel really good. I wanted to feature her because if you leave a review, I will feature you on the show as well as a small thank you for taking the time to help me grow the Retro Wildlands. If you aren't able to leave any feedback on your podcasting platform, just shoot me a message on social media. I'd be super happy to hear from you. Alright, I think that is more than enough of a peek behind the scenes here today. After all of that, I think it's about time we get to the reason that you're all here today. It is time to talk about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for the Nintendo Entertainment System. RetroGub reached out to the show through our Twitter page and said, Water level. Scarred me for life. I have to say, Retro, I am with you 110%. I know I made the joke earlier that this game has a water level, and water levels are actually fun for me most of the time. The water level in this game is probably one of the most notorious, and I have to agree. That level left its mark on me, and really, not in a good way. In this water level, you have a time limit, the hazards are tough to navigate, and there's mutant algae that can grab you and drag you under. Anytime that happened to me, I actually had to turn the game off. For someone like me that has a fear of drowning, especially when I was little, that part just got to me. So that said, I will absolutely be talking about this level today. Thank you for taking the time to reach out to us on Twitter, my friend. I absolutely appreciate it. Jay from the Waffling Taylors podcast also chimed in on our Twitter page and said, This was one of the first video games I ever played, period. I was TMNT mad when I was a kid, and this was a perfect, if infuriatingly difficult, game for me. Though I never had trouble with the damn level, I quickly lost interest after it. And that music was amazing. It perfectly captured the spirit of the TV show without actually using any of the music from it. Even if the composer stole the attract music from Queen, it's one or two notes shy of Stone Cold Crazy. Right off the bat, Jay, I have to say, I had no idea the opening music to this game was so close to that Queen song. But when I listened to it, wow, blew my mind. Those of you listening, if you want to check out the parallels, a quick Google search will reveal all. But be warned, when you hear it, you cannot unhear it. But beyond all that, I agree with a lot of what you say about the game. The spirit of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are absolutely represented in this game, and the game doesn't have to force that fact on you. 
It's subtle and well-designed in that way, and I like the game for that. And while I agree this game has some great qualities to it, it is absolutely infuriatingly difficult, and I'm sure many people feel the same way in some respects. Thanks again for writing into the show, Jay. It's always good to hear from you. The Retro Wars podcast also sounded off on our Twitter page and said, What fucking support, April? What fucking support? (laughs) For those that don't get the reference, when you're past the first part of the game and you've rescued April O'Neil, she'll sound off with hints and advice in the pause menu. After she says something, she'll always end it with, You have my support. And I have to agree with you, Retro Wars. Where's the support, April? The advice you give isn't even all that helpful. Come on. (laughs) It was always something that made me roll my eyes, and I'm glad I'm not the only one. Thanks for tossing out that comment, Retro Wars. That made me chuckle. Curtis on our Retro Wildlands Facebook page wrote in and said, I never managed to beat this game. I didn't own an NES myself, so we would rent one from Blockbuster, along with games, but the rental period was always too short, and I had to share with my sisters, so there was always at least one multiplayer game that got played more frequently instead. I just never got enough time to get good enough to beat it. I never beat this game as a kid either, Curtis. I technically owned it and played it a decent amount at my grandparents' house, but the furthest I could get is just past the damn level, and if I survived that level, I wouldn't make it very long past that. Even with the time that I spent these last few weeks, I'd like to think I'm pretty good at this game, but even then, this game can still kick my ass, so don't worry, my friend. I almost think that you got out of a little bit of misery as a kid by not having to beat this game. Thanks a bunch for writing into the show, Curtis. It's always a pleasure hearing from you as well, my friend. And finally, Retro Tiburon over on our Instagram page simply asked, Why is this game so brutal? Well, Retro Tiburon, I'll respond with what I said back to you on Instagram. This game has all the emotions of raising a child. I love it. I truly do. But sometimes it just does some really dumb things. I yell at it, I try to correct it, but it still doesn't load the dishwasher when I tell it to. But still, I love it to death. Eh, The difficulty of this game is nothing to laugh at, and it will definitely leave a mark, as I'm sure it did on you, my friend. Hopefully these cuts aren't too deep, because I have to admit, as hard as this game was to go back to, I did have quite a bit of fun despite it all. I'm eager to tell you and everybody else my thoughts about this game now that I've played it as an adult. Thank you very much for reaching out, Retro Tiburon. I appreciate the comment. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was originally released in North America on June 25th, 1989. We take control of the Ninja Turtles, and our task is to rescue April O'Neil, who was captured by Shredder and the dreaded Foot Clan. And while rescuing April seems like just another day for our Ninja Turtles, there's something more at stake here. Shredder has something the Turtles want to get their hands on. The Life Transformer Gun. This piece of tech is the one thing the Turtles can use to transform their Ratmaster Splinter back into human form. Can they rescue April and put an end to Shredder and the Foot Clan once and for all? Or will they see themselves captured and be forced to watch as Shredder's army of mindless goons take over? Well, my friends, that is going to be up to us. So let's gear up, Wildlanders. 
tie on your ninja bandanas, grab your ninja weapons, and don't forget a slice of pizza. It's time for us to go on the offensive and show Shredder some good old-fashioned turtle power. late 1980s, it was hard not to be swept up in the craze that was the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Like most kids around that time, my introduction to them was the cartoon series airing at that point. I don't know what it was, but the turtles just clicked for me. The shows were fun and engaging, and more than anything, I wanted to be just like the Ninja Turtles. I mean, who didn't, right? Leonardo was such a badass as the leader, and I love that his weapons were the twin katanas. Raphael was kind of a dick sometimes, but his confidence was something that I really wanted to emulate as a meek only child. Michelangelo made me laugh a lot, and it was hard not to like him, and Donatello was really smart, and I loved watching him think through problems and get the turtles out of some jams that they had to think their way out of instead of fighting their way out of. I would get turtle action figures for my birthdays and other toys, and for a while, I was in Ninja Turtle heaven. It couldn't possibly get any better than this, I thought. But then one day, when I was visiting my grandparents, it did get better than this. Sitting on the coffee table was the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles video game for the Nintendo. My grandmother, in her kind-hearted, raspy voice, said, we got you a new game for the Nintendo, honey. My grandfather, who spent most of his time in his recliner, looked over to me and gave me a slight smile and a subtle nod. I walked over to the coffee table and took the game in both hands and just stared at it. The plastic case of the game felt like pure gold in my hands. I stared at the logo on the front and soaked up every single detail. Since I started my Turtles experience with the cartoon, I wasn't really sure why all the Turtles on the logo were wearing red bandanas, but it was still easy to pick out my heroes. There was Leonardo in the middle, one sword in hand and another sheathed on his back. Donatello was off to the left, his long bow staff about to thrust into something just out of view. Raphael was near the bottom with his deadly dual size in hand. And that left Michelangelo off to the right with his signature nunchucks. I couldn't tell where the turtles were based on the picture, but it looked like they were in the Technodrome, the massive metallic dome-like fortress of the turtles' arch-enemy Shredder. Looking at this cover, my mind raced with all the possibilities. In my stubby little fat hands, I held an adventure I wasn't going to get by watching the cartoons. I was going to actually participate in the adventure myself, and I was going to be the one calling the shots. I remember asking if I could play my new game right away, but Grandma shook her head and said, 
Not until after dinner. We're having tuna casserole. God damn it, Grandma. It is fun looking back to that point in my childhood. I often think about this game here and there, and I have some pretty fond memories with it, like I expect some of you do if you've played this game before when you were little. On the surface, I think of fighting through the sewers, trying to rescue April O'Deal, who finds a way to get herself captured again and again. I think of swapping between each Ninja Turtle on the fly, and using each turtle's unique weapons to push past waves and waves of enemies. But then again, I start to get flashes of other moments in time. The time where the platforming was so hard I couldn't get past certain areas. There was the notorious underwater level that more than likely gave me nightmares some nights. And then there were these steamroller things that would seemingly flat one of my turtles instantly. Really, when I think about the game, I go through a roller coaster of emotions. On one hand, this game has so much nostalgia attached to it for me. It's a unique game that I always thought was something special from an experience and gameplay standpoint as well. But, on the other hand, this game can be pretty difficult and unforgiving. As a kid, hard games never really bothered me though, I just enjoyed playing whenever I could. But, I guess the real question I found myself asking lately was, is this game as fun as I remember, despite these black spots I mentioned earlier? Is it really as hard and unforgiving as people say? Well, over the last few weeks, I was determined to find out. I haven't played this game since I was little, so I was eager to jump back in and give one of my childhood favorites another go, and find out once and for all if this game is as good as I remember, or as bad as others are telling me. And now that I've finally beaten this game, I have to say, I have some thoughts. So in order to make sense of it all, we need to break this experience down and see what it is that we're working with. So, what is this game? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on the NES is a side-scrolling action platformer where we take control of one of the four Ninja Turtles. April O'Neil has been kidnapped by the evil Shredder and it's up to the four ninjas to rescue her and bring her back to safety. While the game features all four turtles as playable characters, this game is actually a one-player game only. But the interesting part about that is you can switch between any of the four turtles at pretty much any point during the gameplay by pausing the game and selecting somebody else. In that way, all four turtles are present and accounted for during our adventure. After I had grown into adulthood, I had forgotten there's actually a story to this game, and it's not just us playing as the turtles to hunt down and defeat Shredder. There's actually quite a bit that's going on in this game. Now, there's no opening text crawl when we boot up the game or anything like that, so that means to get the story exposition, we're going to have to check out the instruction manual on this one. I've said it a bunch of times in other episodes, but I love video game instruction manuals. There's usually bits about the game's story that you wouldn't get otherwise, and other little details about the items that you find in the game, the enemies you fight, and potentially so much more. This game's manual is pretty robust when it comes to story and a few other things, but let's set the scene here by reading a passage out of the instruction manual itself. Steam rises from Wall Street sewers like hot breath from a wild pack of dogs. 
just below the pavement's puddle-strewn surface, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles have gathered around the leftovers of a family reunion-sized sausage pizza with extra sauce. Usually, these party dudes would inhale the mozzarella platter as if it were the last za on Earth. But not tonight. You see, only hours ago, their trusted friend April was kidnapped from her mobile news van by the vile, ruthless terrorist bully, Shredder. He's a slice-o-matic crumb, a villain more vicious than an army of mind-altering Bruce Lees. Yes, that is in the instruction manual, I am reading it word for word. With their lovely cohort held hostage, the fearless foursome must concoct a way to rescue April before Shredder brainwashes her into joining the Foot Clan. They'll combine this treacherous task with the mission they've been on since their mutated beginnings. To thrash Shredder and capture his Life Transformer gun, the lone piece of technology that can turn their rat friend Splinter back into the man he used to be. So take control of these heroes in a half shell and either claim victory over New York's premier Kickman or lead them onto the menu at McTurtles, the home of the quarter flounder with cheese. What the hell? <laughs> ah, I love instruction manuals. So cheesy and so corny. But looking past all the references for the time, we now have our story set up. April O'Neil needs rescuing for probably the 17th time, and Shredder has a tool that we can use to turn Master Splinter back into a human. Well, I think that's all the motivation we need, so it's time we get moving on our mission. Now for this episode, I want to jump into the first area of the game and use it as a way to talk about the parts of the presentation and gameplay elements that I want to highlight, but before we do... Let's take a little bit of time to understand what each Ninja Turtle themselves brings to the table and what tools that we'll have at our disposal. In order for us to win the day, we're going to need the combined strength of the Ninja Turtles and everyone will have their role. Even if that role happens to be sacrificial lamb. <laughs> So, one of my favorite gameplay features is our ability to switch between turtles on the fly. When you press the pause button on the controller, you'll see a listing of all four turtles on the right-hand side of the screen. Select the turtle you want, unpause, and you will become that new turtle. It's a direct swap, meaning if your turtle was jumping in midair when you pause the game, your new turtle will be in midair as well when you unpause the game. The transition is incredibly seamless and adds a layer of strategy to the game. Like I mentioned before, even though this is a one-player game, you at least have all four turtles with you on the journey to use. Now, in most video games with multiple characters, each character usually brings specific strengths or gameplay advantages to the table while you have to keep their inherent weaknesses in mind. And while this game isn't too different, I will say that the scales of strengths and weaknesses are a little uneven across our four heroes. Now, for as far as controlling the turtles, they all take the same basic actions. When you attack, your chosen turtle will swing or thrust their weapon out in front of them. If you hold up or down on the directional pad, your turtle will attack upwards or downwards. Since each weapon the turtles use is different, the speed at which they attack, the power of those attacks, and the range of those weapons aren't all the same. 
Mobility is slightly different between each turtle as well, but I really had to watch close to really notice the differences in movement speed. And as far as damage dealing goes, it almost seems like each turtle is more effective against certain types of enemies more than anything else. You'll start to notice this as you go, and you'll get used to jumping from turtle to turtle depending on what enemies are currently on screen. But those that have played this game before know a simple truth. While it sounds awesome to use all of the Ninja Turtles in this sort of way, only two out of four turtles are inherently useful 90% of the time. So of all the turtles, Leonardo has always been my personal favorite turtle since I was little. And while I think fans of the Ninja Turtles all have deeper reasons for liking the ones that they do, my like for Leonardo is pretty surface level. He uses two swords as his weapons, it's pretty much as simple as that. In the game, Leonardo was always my favorite to use, and Leonardo was pretty much my workhorse. He attacks with his katana sword and swings it pretty quick. Leo's range is pretty good, but it's actually better when he attacks upwards or downwards. Because he attacks so fast and deals pretty decent damage to most things, I got the most actual use out of him. Moving on to Raphael, he was probably the turtle that I used the least. Raph uses a weapon called a Psy, which is more or less a dagger. He swings it pretty quick, but the range on the Psy is relatively short. Raph also moves at a decent speed, so he's not completely useless, but if Leonardo is available and Leo has a decent amount of health left, I always choose Leo over Raph. Next up is Michelangelo, and he is about as useful as Raphael is. He uses the nunchuck as his weapon, and it doesn't have much more range than Raph's size. From my experience using Mikey, it seems like he moves a little faster than the rest of the turtles, but I don't know how much speed really matters in this game with the amount of enemies that can be on screen at one time in some areas. Mikey did have his uses for me, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Now we come to Donatello. Veterans of this game know exactly what I'm going to say right now, so I'll make this very clear for newcomers. Keep Donatello alive at all costs. He is, without a single doubt, the best out of all the turtles. He is so good, it is almost unfair how useful he is in this game. While Donnie seems to be the slowest moving turtle out of the bunch, that does not matter. Donnie's weapon is the bow staff, and it has the longest range out of all the other weapons. Not only that, most enemies seem like they'll perish in just one hit with Donnie's bow staff. Because of how useful and powerful Donatello is, you want to make sure that he does not perish. You're certainly going to want to use him and make use of his abilities to push forward. Just make sure that you're careful with him and be kind to our purple bandana wearing friend. Other than utilizing their signature weapons, the turtles may come across other weapons and items that will aid them on their mission. I'll keep it brief, but let's run down a few of these before we pop the game in and try our skills at the first area of the game. So as you progress, you may come across weapons and items that you can pick up and use against the enemies in this game. If you do score one of these sub-weapons, as I like to call them, it will be equipped to your turtle until you use them all up, or you pick up another sub-weapon. 
At the bottom right-hand side of the screen, you'll see an empty box initially, but if you grab an item, that item's icon will now show there so you know what it is that your turtle has. Pressing the select button will select that item, and instead of using your regular weapon, you'll now be using your sub-weapon. Simple enough. One sub-weapon that you can come across is the Shuriken, or Throwing Star. I think when you grab one of these, you'll get a total of 20 to throw, and as you grab more, you'll stack more and more Throwing Stars so you can potentially stockpile a total of 99. Nothing too fancy here, just throw them and they'll sail across the screen and do damage to anything that they touch. They're a great way to deal damage at a distance and keep yourself away from damage-dealing enemies. There's also a 3 shuriken version of this item that throws 3 out at the same time. These are fantastic for groups of enemies, but I didn't see the triple shuriken appear too terribly often. Overall, these items are solid picks and certainly better than having no sub-weapon at all. One sub-weapon that I found fascinating was the boomerang. While the cold hard steel of a shuriken throwing star certainly sounds cooler than a boomerang, this weapon is pretty useful in its own right. You start with 20 of these when you pick them up, and when you throw them, they fly out in front of you to hit the enemy. They are much slower to fly across the screen than the shuriken, but after flying as far forward as they can, they'll start to fly backwards. Boomerangs can fly through enemies, so after dealing damage on the initial throw, they can deal follow-up damage on their way back to the point of origin. What's cooler is if they make contact with your turtle. The boomerang can be caught and added back to your total count, so in theory, you can have an unlimited supply. Now, I can never really get a feel for how powerful this weapon actually is, but it has its uses. I personally like using them against some boss enemies, throwing the boomerang at them and just evading their attacks while the boomerang does all the damage. And another fun thing that you can do is you can throw the boomerang out, and before it comes back, you can switch to another turtle, and that turtle can catch the boomerang and add it as their sub-weapon. Now, I never really had a reason to do this, but I thought it was kind of cool. Now, all of the weapons I just mentioned have the potential to be found in the wild or dropped by enemies. You want to be a little careful, though, now that I think about it, because picking up a new sub-weapon will replace your old sub-weapon, so just be mindful of that as you're killing enemies and moving along. And you also want to make sure that you don't accidentally pick up a different sub-weapon if the sub-weapon that you like is one that you're consistently using. That's a huge bummer when you take out an enemy and accidentally walk into something that you don't want, so be mindful. But of all the sub-weapons that are available to you, if there's any that you want to make sure that you grab and hold on to at all costs, it's our last sub-weapon called the Kiai Scroll. Scrolls are not dropped by enemies, and you'll have to find them in the environment in order to obtain them, but this item is one that you will most likely need in order to beat this game, or at the very least, it makes the journey so much easier. When you use a scroll, a wave of energy flies forward, and this wave is pretty wide, just over half the length of your turtle. Damage output is pretty solid, and it will kill most enemies in a single hit. Furthermore, it will fly through enemies so it has the potential to hit others behind it. 
And if that weren't enough, the scrolls can make short work out of many of the game's tougher bosses. Because you only find them in the environment and not through random item drops, you'll want to hoard these until you absolutely need them to get out of a jam. Veterans of this game probably know about a couple opportunities that you'll have in the game to farm this item repeatedly, so you could potentially stock all of your turtles up with them, but generally speaking, when I played, I would only have one turtle hoard them all, and usually that turtle was Michelangelo. But all of that aside, let me repeat myself. If you want to beat this game, or at least have an easier time at beating this game, I highly recommend securing as many Kiai scrolls as you can. Last thing I'll mention before we set off on our in-game mission is that, scattered around levels, you may find pizza power-ups. Just like real life, eating pizza in this game will restore your health and heal all of your wounds. Each turtle has eight blocks that signify their health at the bottom of the screen. A slice of pizza will restore your health by two blocks. A half a pizza will recover your health by four blocks. And eating a full pizza will fully restore your health. One of the key components of playing and beating this game is managing the health bars of all four of the turtles. Each turtle has their own health meter. When you come across a pizza, you should take a moment and decide who on your team needs that pizza the most. Now, if you were paying attention at all earlier when I said that Donatello is to be kept alive at all costs, that usually means Donnie is going to be the one that you want to keep healthy. Obviously, just use some common sense when managing your health across the team. Oh, and here's a fun fact. Most of the time when you leave an area completely and return to it, Item and pizza power-ups will reset, so you can collect them again. Keep that one in your back pocket, because I promise that will be useful. <laughs> now that I think about it, speaking of eating pizza to restore your health, that actually reminds me of a dumb childhood memory. One night when my mom asked me what I wanted for dinner, I told her I wanted to try and eat a half a pizza all by myself. When she asked me why in God's green earth I wanted to do that, I told her that the Ninja Turtles in my game would eat half a pizza and it would restore half of their health. I was sick at the time and I thought that it would make me feel better by eating some pizza. My mom, of course, tried her best to tell me that was the dumbest thing that she'd ever heard without telling me that to my face, but eventually she relented. I ended up eating half a pizza all by myself that night. Of course, it did not make me feel any better. In fact, it made me feel worse because now, along with the sniffles and a cough, I had a pretty upset stomach. But I do remember going to school and bragging to my friends about it. Eh, I don't know why I shared that story just now, but I appreciate you indulging me, my friends. Alright, let's get back on track. So, we have the basic story set up, we've met the turtles and have an idea of their strengths and weaknesses, and we have a rundown of the items that we're going to find on our journey. I think it's time for us to jump into the game and get a feel for the presentation and the gameplay. When we slide the cartridge into the Nintendo and turn it on, we're met with the title screen. As a kid, and even today as an adult, I never hit start right away. I always liked watching the short opening movie that plays. In that short movie, each Ninja Turtle is introduced in what I think is spectacular fashion. 
Each Ninja Turtle is shown transforming from a regular turtle into their mutated bipedal forms, and they give us a small weapons demonstration. Leo swings his swords, Raph twirls his size, and so on. Each turtle gets an 8-bit close-up and a description of their weapon of choice. When the showcase is over, we're shown a brief scene where Master Splinter points upwards and the camera pans to reveal the evil Shredder, who has April O'Neil captive. He's surrounded by his evil Foot Clan, and even though we can't see Shredder's face, we know he's snarling menacingly. It's going to be up to us to take him out and save April, so let's get to it, team. When we press the start button on the controller, we're thrown right into the action. When the game opens up, we're taken to an overworld-style view where we're looking down upon Leonardo in the third person. We can move him around the area with the directional pad. In each of the game's larger overworld areas, we can enter buildings to explore and even go down manholes to enter the sewers. The end location and goal really isn't made all that clear, but in this first area, our mission is to find April and rescue her. When we press the pause button, we're taken to a menu that has some pretty useful information on it. On the top left of the screen, we're given a grid-like map of the area that we're in. Any white blocks signify any areas that we can enter like doors or manholes. This is useful in getting around a new area, though I never really use the map all that often myself. To the right is the list of Ninja Turtles themselves, and it's from here that you can select a new turtle on the fly. Their overall health is displayed, as well as whatever sub-weapon they might have equipped. And at the bottom left, there's a text box where we might get some useful hints from either Master Splinter or April after we save her. These hints can be useful in gathering clues on where to go next or what it is that you need to do. Alright, let's get moving. We'll go ahead and stick with Leonardo, so when we press the pause button again, we're back to the game. Now. The interesting thing about this game is that some of the locations in an area are completely optional, and they don't necessarily need to be explored to progress. This is true with the very first manhole that we come across, but for the sake of exploration, we're gonna head down. When we move Leo over the hole in the ground, we're instantly taken to the sewers, and the game switches to the classic side-scrolling view. Leo descends a ladder at the top left of the screen, and we need to press down on the directional pad to get him to solid ground. The location that we're in is divided into two sections. The very ground floor and a platform in the middle of the screen separated by a gap. We've also got some enemies on screen in the form of Mousers. Mousers are these short little robots that come equipped with metal jaws capable of crushing iron sewer grates. While that may sound threatening and menacing, these little guys pose very little threat to us. We can try to avoid them, but it's probably best that we just take them out. Pressing right on the directional pad, we move Leo to the gap in the floor and let him drop down. As soon as he hits the ground, we press the B button on the controller and Leo swings his blade out in front of him. When we make contact with the mouser, it's easily dispatched and explodes, clearing it off the screen. There's a couple more Mousers behind it, but our eyes catch a Mouser that's on the ledge above us. 
It's about to fall off that edge and land right on top of us, but with some quick reflexes, we press up on the directional pad and attack, causing Leo to thrust his sword upwards. The mouser impales itself on our blade and explodes. There's a couple more mousers on the ground level in front of us that we take out with ease, and then we move forward. Eventually, we get to a point where we have no choice but to jump up to the ledge above us, so we do that with the jump button. Now, right away, you're going to notice that jumping in this game is... Yeah, pretty floaty, for lack of a better term. It's almost like the law of gravity does not apply to the turtles, because when you press the jump button, they float upwards pretty high and pretty slow. While we're in the air, we can actually move our turtle around a little bit. About halfway into the initial jump, your turtle will curl itself into a little ball. It's pretty much like Contra if you've ever played that NES Classic, except moving the turtles in midair is nowhere near as snare-tight as Contra is. Still, we're afforded some decent mobility, but you'll need to keep your limitations in mind when you're in the air. Like, right now, actually. As we make our way up and over the ledge, a flying enemy spawns from the right, and we have very little time to do something about it. We can't move out of the way fast enough, but what we can do is attack in midair. Pressing the attack button will have Leo slash his sword, and if we time it just right, we can take out this airborne threat before it causes us damage. But if you're anything like me, you'll see the threat too late, and you'll take a hit. When taking damage in this game, you'll get hit with a little bit of knockback and fall back down to ground level. If that happens, we'll just jump right back up and keep moving along. As we move forward, we're introduced to another enemy. Appearing seemingly out of nowhere, a foot soldier is standing in our way and tries to attack us by throwing shurikens towards us. If we can time our attacks just right, we can slash them right out of the air with Leo's swords. Once we do, we move towards the evil ninja and we attack. When we strike the foot soldier with our attack, his sprite will blink, but he doesn't perish like the mousers did. Foot soldiers in this game do not go down in one hit like the other enemies, so we need to remain vigilant. After taking the initial hit from Leo's sword strikes, the foot soldier jumps in the air just like we do. All we need to do is wait for him to slowly float to the ground and have a slash of Leo's swords waiting for him, and that's the end of that. Or so we think. As soon as we begin to move on again, another foot soldier enters the area from behind us, but this battle is a little unique. Sometimes we're forced to battle against enemies in a mini-boss sort of fashion. The screen no longer scrolls, so we're kind of locked in the area that we're in, and the enemy's life bar will actually appear below our own. We have to defeat this threat in order to move forward. As we progress through the game, we'll encounter these moments plenty of times on our journey, and none of them are too terribly hard, thankfully. Generally, we'll be going toe-to-toe -to -toe with a single enemy, but they can disrupt the pacing of the game a little bit when we have to stop what we're doing to give these jerks the attention they require. In this case, it doesn't take much to destroy the foot soldiers, so we do so pretty quickly. Once defeated, we're met with a short victory fanfare. And then we're back at it. 
At this point, the rest of the area is pretty easy and it doesn't take much for us to find the exit. On our way out, we find a single slice of pizza to refill Leonardo's lost health. We grab it and then we climb the ladder and head back to the overworld map. The next manhole we come across takes us back down to the sewers and leads us to our first actual boss encounter. This section is full of enemies this time, both ground-based and flying types. Enemies will tend to spawn on screen pretty abruptly, so it will actually do you well to just take your time and not rush things. Sometimes when enemies move off screen, they can double back on you, but other times they just disappear altogether. Just stay focused, rely on Master Splinter's ninja training, and you'll be just fine. As we get to the end of the area, we see a ledge up high to our right that leads to a doorway. As we approach, and just as we get underneath that overhang, we find out that we have walked into an ambush. From right behind us, Bebop, the mutant warthog and one of Shredder's lackeys, comes charging in from behind. Up on the ledge, we can now see April is being held captive by Rocksteady, the mutant rhinoceros. We can't get to April right now, so we need to focus on defeating Bebop. Bebop's charge attack is hard to jump over with the overhang above us. Because of this, he nails us for some pretty decent damage. We turn around and attack with Leo's swords and deal some damage of our own, but Bebop isn't going to go down without a fight. It's best to get out of that corner as quickly as you can, but if Bebop does too much damage to you, you could be in trouble. In this game, when you start running out of health, the game makes sure that you are well aware of this fact by sounding an alarm that veteran players probably still hear in their nightmares. Ah, god damn, that is so annoying. I don't know about you, but I absolutely despise low health indicator noises. Some games aren't as bad as others, but if it's a high-pitched sound that persists, whoa, that really grinds my gears. At least this one goes away after a few chimes, but, oh man, this tone was the stuff of nightmares when I was a kid. Anyway, this battle here is best won with Donatello and his incredibly long bow staff. Let's pause the game and select Donnie. Alright, perfect. When we unpause, Donatello has taken the field. All we have to do now is attack with Don from a good distance away, jump over Bebop, and repeat. Easy peasy. With Bebop defeated, Rocksteady grabs April and hightails it out of there. From here, we can jump up on that ledge and give chase. And that's pretty much the first five or so minutes of the game. Gameplay for the most part will follow this basic formula. Explore the area, find your objective, and move on to the next area after a tense boss battle or two. For the time, what I really think makes the gameplay special in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is the somewhat non-linearity of the exploration. You aren't just going from level to level in order, you're given a bit of freedom when it comes to how you explore. When you first play the game, it isn't quite clear what route you need to take in order to get where you need to go, and I always loved that sense of discovery when you figured out what manholes connect to which areas and what rooms contain sub-weapons or healing items. 
Once you have it all figured out, it's easy to just beeline it towards the level's conclusion if you want to. What further adds to the game's uniqueness, even by today's standards, is the idea that you're more or less taking all the turtles with you on this journey, and you have to be mindful of their health in order to keep them all alive. Bouncing between different turtles on the fly and adapting to specific situations and enemies is pretty awesome and a gameplay feature that I don't think is utilized too much even nowadays. Or if it is utilized, I don't think it's utilized very well in some cases, but I digress. As you play through the game, you will eventually get to a point where you may lose a turtle on your team. When this happens, it can hit you pretty hard and make things much more difficult depending on who you lose. When a turtle takes too much damage and runs out of health, they'll become captured and they'll be unselectable. All is not lost, however. A captured turtle can actually be rescued if you can find them. The Foot Clan will tie them up and leave them in an upcoming location in the game, so if you explore a bit and keep your eyes open, they can be rescued and added back to your team. Oddly enough, back when I was a kid, I had no idea that you could rescue a captured turtle. I was never good enough at the game to get very far, so I had always assumed that when you lost a turtle, they were gone for good. It actually wasn't until I was an adult that I learned about this, and my first reaction was, no way, it can't be true. But when I learned you could rescue a captured turtle, I was blown away like I'm sure some of you finding out for the first time were. But even though you can rescue a captured turtle, you should do everything you can to avoid them being captured in the first place. Not only do you lose them until you can rescue them, you'll have to start at the very beginning of the section that you are playing in, so it can really set your progress back. So, up to this point, I think I've portrayed pretty positive feelings when it comes to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 8-bit experience. While the game is fairly simple-sounding and stands above others with how it allows you to balance the turtles by switching between them on the fly, this conversation wouldn't be complete if I didn't talk about some of the elephants in the room when it comes to some of the more, let's say, difficult aspects of this game. You see, for as innovative as this game can be sometimes, this game can be hard as hell. Sometimes the sheer amount of enemies on the screen will force you to take damage, and there's not much you can do about it sometimes. Enemies tend to have spawn points, I've noticed, so if you encounter an enemy, backtrack, and then come back to where you just were, those enemies will have respawned, requiring you to avoid or combat them again. This can be incredibly frustrating if you're trying to take your time. You walk backwards just a little too much, and then you have to fight the same enemy you just defeated. And speaking of, here is a classic example, and through this example, I'll get to complain about the enemies and the sometimes terrible platforming in this game, so we're going to call this one a twofer. So in the second area of the game, that is the dam level. And yes, I can hear all of the veteran Turtles players collectively sighing at this point. You come across a room where you have to travel to the right, climb a ladder to get to an upper area, and then you need to travel to your left in order to go through a door to see yourself on top of the dam. The problem here is, there's a sizable gap in the floor when you reach this door. To make this jump, you have to be on the very, very edge of the floor that you're standing on before you jump. 
You cannot be a pixel in either direction. Too far forward and you'll fall down to the level below. One pixel too far back, and when you jump, you won't make the gap and then you'll fall down to the level below. No big deal, you might be thinking to yourself, I'll just travel all the way back to the right, climb the ladder and try again. Ah, you poor, naive fool you. When you travel back to an area that you just cleared, all of the monsters and enemies you killed will have respawned, and you will have to fight or dodge them all over again. It is almost guaranteed that you will take damage in this process as well. Personally, it took me about a half a dozen attempts to finally cross this gap. Back when I was a kid, all it took was a single screw-up like this to cause me to lose a turtle, effectively screwing up my run. It was, and still is, very frustrating and borderline rage-inducing. But if you think that's bad, I think it's time to talk about a level in the game that is probably the most notorious. The single level that can make or break your entire run. The level that gave me nightmares as a kid and the level that is actually broken from a coding standpoint. I, of course, am talking about the underwater level. Making it to the underwater level was a feat all its own when I was a kid. While I think most adults with decent gaming ability can get here no problem, it's still a satisfying feat to be sure. So here's how the underwater level works. Shredder, for some unknown reason, has planted eight bombs on the damn wall. We have two minutes and 20 seconds, which seems like such a random amount of time, to swim through this area and defuse all eight bombs before time expires. Along the way, there's going to be plenty of things trying to stop you. You'll encounter laser traps, rotating gears, algae-like tentacles, and electrified seaweed. I have no clue how seaweed can be electric, but that's the best way to describe this nightmare. Basically, anything that isn't the rocky surface around you wants you dead. Now, the level itself isn't very big, and the time limit in this level is pretty generous in my opinion, so really there isn't a need to rush here. As you're swimming around with your selected turtle, you'll notice some areas of the water have a current that'll pull you in one direction or the other. Typically, this is going to be to the right. As you swim along, the more common threat will be the laser traps. A device that's very hard to see with your naked eye can be seen at the top and bottom of the rock wall. When they activate, they'll create an electrical line effectively blocking your path. You can swim through this electrical barrier, but if you touch it, you'll take damage. You will need to use caution and only swim through the area when the laser is off. You're going to want to be quick though, as the laser doesn't stay off for very long. Swimming in general through this area can be pretty hard and a little tough to get used to at first. You have to tap your jump button repeatedly to swim and use your directional buttons to move you in whatever direction that you're wanting to go. If you tap too much, you might move a little bit too far, but if you don't tap enough, you may find yourself sinking to the bottom of the screen. Now here are the huge problems with this level and why it's so reviled by many. Because your turtle has the potential to be so hard to control at times, you are going to take damage in this level. A lot of damage, especially if you've never played this game before. 
While the laser traps can be hit or miss when it comes to difficulty, the real challenge lies with the electrified seaweed lying the walls of this level. Getting hit by these saps your health one full square, and the seaweed hits you in really quick succession if you don't get away from it. There's one section of this water level that you'll have to navigate through that has seaweed above and below you, so you have to make sure that you're tapping your swim button just fast enough to stay in the very middle so you avoid damage. Unless you've got the timing down exactly right, you will take damage in this gauntlet, so just be prepared for that. It was this exact gauntlet that would oftentimes kill me and effectively end my run as a kid. Unless you know what you're doing and you have a steady hand, you're gonna take damage, like I said. If you need to change to another turtle in the middle of all this, do not be afraid to. I think the best turtles to use in this section, since I never really used them anywhere else, would be either Raphael or Michelangelo. This is where that sacrificial lamb reference I made comes into play. Basically, if I have to lose a turtle in this area, I'd rather it be Raphael or Michelangelo. No one turtle is better in this area than another, so that's why I use them. Regardless of who you decide to use, all I will say is do not use Donatello in this level because this would be a shitty way for you to lose him. Another thing to mention is, while this level is short, there are a couple branching paths that you can take. It's possible to miss one of the bombs altogether if you aren't careful, so just bear that in mind. But I have to say, the most traumatizing thing about this level are the algae traps that you'll see at the bottom of the level. These algae traps are just bunches of long, glowing, tentacle-looking things. They look very pretty, and they certainly do not look threatening. However, if you swim too low and get too close, the tendrils will reach out and grab you, and while you watch in horror, you'll get to see your turtle struggle as the tendrils drag them down and consume them. I still remember the first time that ever happened to me as a kid. Like I mentioned before, I was not much of a swimmer, and I kind of have a fear of drowning, which I think stemmed when I was a kid. So when I was little and I watched this happen, I was mortified. Watching my character get drugged down underwater, struggling to break free from the grasp of those tendrils, probably did not help me at all when I was little. Really, I just... All I remember is looking at my TV screen in horror. It was so bad, actually, that I had to reach over and shut the Nintendo off, and I just sat there, mortified. It took me a few days to actually get the courage to try this level again, but eventually I got back to it, and eventually I did beat it. But any time I was above those algae pits, I clenched up something fierce. <laughs> it was that bad. Now, all of that aside, I did mention earlier that this level was broken from a coding standpoint. I did want to throw this out there. If you get a chance, I encourage you to hop on YouTube and search out a channel called Displaced Gamers. They have a video called Behind the Code, the broken water level of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And in it, they go into some pretty intense detail, and they talk about how the water current mechanics and the hitboxes of all the hazards are all pretty screwed up from a coding standpoint, which just adds to the frustration and difficulty of this area. 
It was a pretty interesting watch, and actually helped me navigate that seaweed gauntlet a bit better once I understood how the hitboxes were coded. If nothing else, I always knew this level was busted, and it wasn't just my poor gaming skills, and this video proves it. Just a quick disclaimer, this YouTuber did not reach out to me and have me promote this video or anything. I just thought it would be interesting to check out, so if you have the time, I think you should. Now, once you make it past the underwater level, the game really opens up at this point. The instruction manual calls the area after the dam Wall Street, but I always just called it the city. After defusing all the bombs, Master Splinter finds a way to get himself captured, so it's up to you to get him back while pursuing your main mission. Defeat Shredder and get your hands on his life transformer gun. The city itself is really vast, and there's a decent amount of locations that you can visit. Ultimately, though, you're working your way to one location, but the game is just open enough that you're given the illusion that you're in kind of a sandbox sort of area. The couple times I did make it here as a kid, I was always fascinated by this area. In the overworld, you get to drive around in the turtle van, or the party wagon as it's called, and seek out pathways and new locations to search. There are barricades that block the road, and you'll need to find these anti-Foot Clan missiles that are scattered around in order to blast the barricades and open up more of the city. All the while, you need to make sure that you're keeping your turtles alive in the process. If one of your turtles does end up being captured, they could usually be rescued in the city somewhere if I'm not mistaken, so hope isn't completely lost. Typically what happens to me is I'll be limping after the water level, and if I'm not short on turtles, their health will usually be pretty critical. Enemies in the city are more plentiful, and they do not let up, so you need to take your time and start memorizing attack patterns if you haven't already. As we start to wind it down, and I think back to everything that we've talked about up to this point, I think I can sum up my feelings for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles by saying they are quite mixed. I'd like to think that anyone who's played this game before, and maybe those of you that haven't, if I did a good enough job of describing this title, can see a bit of genius when it comes to the game design, and what it was that the developers were going for. As a one-player-only game, being able to play the game where you're able to swap between turtles on the fly and utilize their strengths and weaknesses is a pretty cool game mechanic. All of the turtles can contribute in some way, even if you just equip different sub-weapons on each turtle and only bring them out when the situation calls for it. The idea that you're exploring a somewhat open space and not just going from level to level is pretty awesome, especially for the time. I always felt like I had a little bit of freedom when it came to exploration and discovering item caches or finding pizza power-ups when I needed them, and it added this sort of survival aspect to the game that I really, really dug. And while I didn't really touch on the presentation of this game now that I think back to it, I will say that this game really does look good on the Nintendo hardware, even if there was a bit more screen flickering than I would have liked to see. Ninja Turtle games are almost a dime a dozen nowadays, and arguably their claim to fame has always been the beat-em-up style games. But I have to say, I would love to see a modern adaptation of this game. An open-world-ish game where you can control your preferred turtle and swap out in real time if you're playing solo. They'd have abilities that they could learn, levels that they could gain, and they'd become more stronger ninjas as you go. 
Basically, what I'm describing is an action RPG-style game that I would love to see using this model. But even with all the things I like about this game and all the fun memories that I had with it when I was little, you can't deny that this game can be frustratingly hard and very unforgiving in some spots. While I argue the water level really isn't all that hard, it is a buggy mess and can be frustrating for the inexperienced. The game becomes relentless as you go, and while this game is completely beatable, it will require you to put in a lot of time to get good, as the kids would say. You will need to memorize area layouts, enemy patterns, item locations, and make sure you stock up on those key eye scrolls if you want to win the day. But even then, there's areas of this game that are just downright unfair. After the city area, there's a stage where you have to descend through several holes in the floor. These floors are just one brick width wide, and are just wide enough for you to accommodate your turtle. If you don't step directly over these holes, your turtle will actually walk over the hole, requiring you to turn around and try again. Now, while that doesn't sound inherently bad, in this particular area, you'll have these wall of spikes that are closing in from the left and right sides of the screen. You have to descend from the top of the screen to the bottom of the screen as quickly as you can before these spikes touch you, and you have absolutely no room for error. If you mess up falling in these holes, you'll run the risk of being touched by these spikes. And if these spikes do end up touching you, you will lose your turtle instantly. Speaking of instant death areas, there's even an area where you'll have to jump over these pits of fire while you're standing on top of conveyor belts. If you fall into the fire, it's an instant death, and that's the end of your turtle. What makes the jumps themselves harder in this area is the fact that there are flying enemies around that will knock you into the pits if you aren't careful. If the jumping wasn't so cumbersome and the platforming in this game just a little tighter, I don't think I'd have a problem with this area, but I lost another run in this area because I kept losing all of my turtles to poor platforming mechanics. Now, I mean what I said before, this game is absolutely beatable, but ugh, I almost gave up. The one thing that saved me though, and in the interest of transparency I will let you know how I beat this game, I took the easy way out and I relied on save states to see me through. Now, I didn't do any save scumming, like saving every time I made a successful jump or anything ridiculous like that, but I would use save states at the beginning of new areas. I'd practice and practice and eventually made it through, but all I have to say is thank god for save states. One day though, I do want to try and beat this game start to finish legitimately, but there's a time commitment there that I just cannot make right now. For those of you that have beaten this game on your own merits without save states, you have my respect, believe me. So as we wrap it all up, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is a game that I think we all have specific feelings towards, whether we've actually played this game or not. I still think this game was pretty innovative for the time and a great experience when it was all said and done. I really, really would like to see this game remade in some capacity, because all of the things that this game does well, I really think it does well. But when I told people that I was going to replay this game, I had more people tell me that I shouldn't than those that told me that I actually should. 
the bugs, the difficulty curve, and the sheer frustration of this game have overshadowed what I think is really a great game. So after everything that I've said today, do I recommend playing this game? Honestly, I do. Even if it's just so you can see what this game is all about. Whether we like it or not, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was an essential retro game and helped propel the Ninja Turtles forward in the gaming sphere, even if this particular game didn't quite fire on all four cylinders. Like I said before, what the game does well, I really think it does well, and when I think back to my experience with this game both as a kid and as an adult, I generally have a good time when I play this game. But I will say, the times that I do have fun with this game are generally the times I go into this experience with no expectations or no aspirations of winning this game. The times I play just to enjoy the experience are the best for me personally. It's when I go into this game expecting to beat it is when I find myself frustrated and upset most of the time. So to that end, if you decide to play Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on the NES, I think my best advice for you would be to just play the game, enjoy the experience, and just see how far you can get. Deep down at its core, this game is a great experience whether you're a Ninja Turtles fan or not. brings us to the end of another trip into the wildlands my friends this has been episode 33 of the retro wildlands teenage mutant ninja turtles for the nintendo entertainment system thank you very much for listening to the show today i'm always happy to have you with us on the expedition the ninja turtles on the nes is a special game to me if nothing else because of the memories it reminds me of when i was little I really do think this game had the makings of something special, and I really would like to see it remade one day. If you've never played this game before, I think you should give it a try, if for no other reason than to see what it's all about. If you do end up giving it a whirl, try and put out of your mind what you might have heard about this game, and just play it on its own merits. You might actually have a pretty decent time with this one. Or it may drive you to the brink of insanity. Either way, I'm sure it will be an experience that you will never forget. If you like the show and want to show it and myself some support, please consider subscribing to the Retro Wildlands on your preferred podcasting platform. This way you'll be notified as soon as I drop new episodes. I'd also appreciate it if you would drop us a good review on your pod platform if you like what I'm doing here. Good reviews, I assume, will help circulate the show, and if nothing else, they'll make me feel like a million bucks. If you want to give me any direct feedback on the show, or you just want to interact, you can follow us over on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube if you search at Retro Wildlands. I typically respond to DMs fairly quickly, and I love getting to know all of you through comments and discussions on our posts. So if you want to come interact, head on over. Or, if nothing else, throw us a follow and every now and then, I'll post something video game related that'll add some retro spice to your timelines and feeds. 
So, what's coming up next? I'm more than likely going to be dropping another top 10 list on you all for your listening pleasure. So far, I've only done two of these types of episodes, and they seem to be well-received. They are both among our top most downloaded episodes so far, so I am happy to give you all what you seem like you want. Plus, I really do enjoy putting these types of episodes together, so it should be a good time for all. What top 10 thing am I going to be counting down this time? Well, I have a few lists already in the works. My top 10 guilty pleasure games, my top 10 favorite game mechanics, my top 10 worst games that I've ever played, and a couple other lists. If you want to hear one of these specifically, or you have an idea for a top 10 list that you think I should put together, reach out to me on social media and let me know. I'll humor pretty much any idea that I think will make a compelling episode, so do not be afraid to let me know what you think. Beyond that, I have a couple more retro games that I'm working through, and a few modern games that I'm working through as well. I'm excited to keep putting together episodes for you all, and I'd love it if you'd continue to hang out with us on our Wildlands expeditions. Just remember that you will always have a place here with us. You're always welcome to gather around the campfire with me, and let me regale you with a tale of adventure. Until then, my friends... My name is Nomad, and you can find me roaming the retro wildlands. (laughs) 